circle, yes, we rotate 360 degrees, high, high, 360 degrees, high, high, 306, 306, 360 degrees, high, high, All right, miyuyam, miyuyam, cho onam, and mokyam to full circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine, produced by members and graduates of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program, broadcasting from right here at KPFA in Huchin, occupied Ohlone territory, also known to settlers as Berkeley, California. This week on Full Circle, we continue to keep our eyes and ears on Palestine and the ongoing attempted genocide taking place, as well as the growing conflict in the region with the U.S. airstrikes on targets in Yemen and Iran itself launching its own strikes on Iraq, Pakistan, and even Syria. On tonight's show, we'll hear from Dr. Aisha Juman of the Yemeni Relief and Reconstruction Foundation, she will give us a little history on Yemen and the Houthi who have disrupted shipping in the Red Sea. Then we'll hear a speech from the West Coast March on Gaza showing Yemeni solidarity for Gaza. And to close out the show, South Africa has presented its case of genocide in the International Criminal Court of Justice and Israel has responded. We'll get an update from Lebanese-American lawyer Bilal Shatila and get an update from the International Court of Justice. All that tonight on Full Circle. I am your host, Freewell and Franklin, coming to you from downtown Antioch. This is Occupied Bay Miwok Territory. Keep it locked right here to KPFA. Yes, again, Miuyam, Miuyam, and Noshun Lovik for joining us tonight on Full Circle. And before I get started with the show, I have a quick correction to make, and that was last week when I referred to the case of genocide being brought against Israel by South Africa, I mistakenly said it was in the International Criminal Court. It's actually in the International Court of Justice, still in The Hague. Also, another quick reminder, last week we reported on actions that were going to be taking place on the weekend and during this past week. I did attend the shutdown of the Port of Oakland, and the following day I did attend the West Coast March on Washington for Gaza. And tonight you will hear just a little bit of those sounds, but there is much, much more available on the First Voice Media Facebook page. That's First Voice Media on Facebook Head over there, check out our videos, and give us a like or a follow. And um, you can see all the videos that we posted of last week's actions. Thank you all in advance for that. Also, another quick reminder, if you haven't filled out the KPFA fall survey, please do so. And if you're a fan or follower of First Voice Media or Full Circle here on the radio, please go ahead and tell them that in the survey You'll find that survey on the top of the KPFA website. That's kpfa.org. If for some reason it's not there, just search listener survey. I'll also post a link to that survey on our website, kpfaapprentice.org, just after the show. All right, now moving on, I want to spend some time tonight talking about the widening effects of Israel's attempted genocide in Gaza. Over the past couple of weeks, things have heated up regionally as the United States launches dozens of attacks on Houthi rebel sites in Yemen. The Houthis have vowed to disrupt shipping commerce in the Red Sea and the port of Aden of any ship supplying aid to the ongoing massacres of the Palestinian people. And until the Palestinian people in need of desperate aid are receiving it. At the same time, uh, the South at the same at this same time, uh, the South African case of genocide against Israel um, was being heard in the International Court of Justice in The Hague. Many see Yemen and South Africa as standing up when others have remained silent and sedentary. So, joining me tonight to discuss some of the recent history in Yemen and the current situation we find ourselves in 
is our friend Aisha Juman. Uh, I believe it's Dr. Aisha Juman of the Yemeni Relief and Reconstruction Foundation. Uh, thanks for joining us, Dr. Juman. Thank you, Frank, for inviting me. Happy to be with you today. Yes, it's uh, good to have you back. And I'm sorry, again, it's under these terrible types of circumstances. There is so much going on over there in Yemen that has a long and very U.S.-involved history. I'm sure we could talk the whole hour about some of this, but can you tell us about the past decade or so in Yemen? Um, who are the Houthis and why have the past four U.S. presidents been shipping and selling massive amounts of weapons uh, to the Saudis, the UAE, and others so they can try and eliminate the Houthis. What's going on um, over this past uh, 10, 15 years? Yeah, yeah, it's actually unfortunate that the U.S. government, through, as you said, four presidents, have actively supported the bombing of Yemen and the starvation of the population of Yemen. This started in 2015 when the Saudi-led coalition announced from Washington, D.C., under the Obama administration, that they are waging a war on the people of Yemen. Uh, the, what they said, that they are doing that to dislodge the Houthis from uh, governing in Yemen. Unfortunately, they did that as the UN envoy to Yemen at that point in time, Jamal bin Omar, had said that the Houthis and all the other parties in Yemen have reached an agreement for a unity government. And they were discussing where to sign that agreement. And Saudi Arabia, even at that point in time, was saying that they you know, need to sign it in Riyadh. So the bombing of Yemen in 2015 was actually done to derail the unity government that was reached uh, in, in early 2015. The Houthis is, um, it actually they are called Ansar Allah. Uh, it's a political group in Yemen that had fought with the previous president of Yemen uh, six wars, during which those wars, the Saudi sided with the Yemeni government and bombed uh, their areas in Yemen. They're from the north of Yemen. I also want to correct here that a lot of people think that the, the Saudis or the U.S. government now are targeting the Houthis. I would say that they are targeting Yemen. They're not targeting the Houthis. If you look at the numbers, uh, the Ansar Allah or, or the Houthi family, they don't represent even 5% of Yemen. Yet there are a lot of people who feel the same way they do and are there fighting on their side. So after nine years of a Saudi UAE-led coalition bombing and starving Yemen by a blockade in which the U.S. was supporting it all along, uh, this group was able to defeat the coalition. So you can't possibly think that 5% of the Yemeni population can defeat you know, a, a coalition of the wealthiest countries in the region, you know, bombing the, the poorest one in the region with support from the U.S., the U.K., and other European countries. And now the U.S. had decided not just to support the Saudis or the Emiratis with arms, they're actually directly bombing and striking Yemen and attacking Yemen. And, and they say it's the Houthis, they're striking airports, they're striking ports, they're striking towns, all of these places belong to the Yemeni people. They don't belong to the Houthis. And you kind of let us in on some of the history of what's been um, going on there. Talk about what had um, what this has done to the country and the people of Yemen. And talk about the conditions the average person in Yemen were and are living in. It wasn't long ago that the children of Yemen were starving in the, um, at that time, the biggest humanitarian crisis in the world and suffering um, mass malnutrition. Um, tell us, since um, things have quieted down there for a minute, um, has that been alleviated or what's the situation on the ground right now for Yemeni people? Well, in terms of the humanitarian crisis, Yemen was called by UN agencies the largest humanitarian crisis in the world. I don't think that has been, 
you know, removed. In terms of food insecurity in Yemen, we have over 17 million people of, in Yemen who are food insecure at the levels of uh, what they call crisis and emergency level, which means at least one in 10,000 people will die hungry a day. We have half of the Yemeni children are uh, chronically and acutely malnourished, meaning many of them are either going to die or also in, in the long term are not going to be developing well cognitively, which means Yemen will have to deal with this issue for many years to come. The blockade on Yemen is still in effect. Uh, you know, nothing gets into Yemen without the Saudi-led uh, coalition approval. The flights into Sana'a are still very restricted, although now we have a few flights per week to Jordan. That's the only uh, available entry uh, into the northern part of Yemen. The World Food Program decided to suspend its activities in the north of Yemen and stop distributing aid from December for 9.5 million people. So the crisis in Yemen is still ongoing. We have, uh, you know, rav the Yemeni children are ravaged by vaccine-preventable diseases, by infectious diseases, by diarrhea, by, you know, all kinds of diseases that could, would not exist without the blockade and the economic devastation that the blockade had put on Yemen. We also have all the Yemeni uh, civil servants have not been paid salaries since 2016 when the Saudi-led coalition decided to move the central bank out of Sana'a. So the disaster is still there. The people of Yemen are still reeling from uh, the war that was, you know, they were forced to have and that hasn't changed. So we were hoping that this month, January, there is going to be a peace process that was uh, led by the UN, and everybody was very optimistic, uh, and the people were going to get their salaries, civil servants, the, the restrictions on the ports and airports were going to be released, and, and, but now with the US getting engaged directly, everything is derailed. Yeah, it sure has um, changed things as well as what I see. It sounds, um, from what you're saying, it sounds like a lot what's happening in Gaza with the blockade where people are, you know, not having the medicine they need, anesthesia, um, antiseptics, anything. So it sounds very similar. Can I say something here? I, I Yeah, absolutely. The Yemeni people understand what's happening in Gaza. They've been bombed. Uh, they've been blockaded. However, uh, and they know what it means to stand for Gaza and what is coming to them because of their stand for Gaza. However, I could never compare what's happening to Gaza to Yemen because what's happening in Gaza is just unimaginable. Uh, you know, over 25,000 people killed, 70% of those are kids and women. And, and the U.S. continues to supply the Israelis with weapons uh, along with many Western nations. Uh, it's just really abhorrent to, to have this happen in this day and age. For sure. And I think um, as we see right now, most of the world is shouting out to have a ceasefire and stop this genocide. Um, we've seen massive inaction by nations to intervene and now after these strikes, we've seen a huge turnout um, and massive rallies in Yemen after these U.S. airstrikes. Can you talk a little bit more about um, the Houthis and how they are viewed by the people of Yemen? And tell us about after this strong stance for the people of Gaza, has this changed any of the perceptions of the Houthis in the eyes of the Yemeni people? Yes, so what Ansar Allah decided to do when nobody was willing to stop the genocide in Gaza is that they put two conditions. One is no Israeli-linked ship can pass through the Red Sea until there is a ceasefire. And the second condition was no, no ships, no matter where, where it's coming from, is going to go to Israel until aid, humanitarian aid, is allowed into Gaza. I mean, these are 
reasonable requests. These are the requests of most of the world, uh, as you know, uh, votes in the United Nations have shown. However, uh, the US government had decided that that is not acceptable, and that's why they started, you know, attacking Yemen for it. That, you know, as I said, the Yemeni people understand what the Gazans are, are suffering, and they also understand that their action by stopping, you know, um, Israeli ships go, or any ship that's going to Israel is going to have, it's going to inflict a lot of pain on them, but they're willing to stand for justice. Um, because Ansarullah made that decision, it just rallied a lot of people in Yemen around them. And even those who were fighting them, many of them now are returning to Sana'a to be part of the unity government that exists in Sana'a now. So you have people who have been, you know, mortal enemies to Ansar Allah, who are now traveling and staying in Sana'a and supporting the Sana'a government. In terms of the Yemeni population, I've never seen the number of uh, rallies. Uh, there are just millions of people in Yemen rallying in support of the decision that Ansar Allah and the Sana'a government has taken. And it's not just in Sana'a. This is happening throughout Yemen. So the, they have the support of the Yemeni people to continue to do this, regardless of the price the Yemeni people have to pay. Because again, it's not only the Houthis or Ansar Allah who will be paying for this decision. It's every single Yemeni who lives in Yemen who is going to pay for this. And the people in Yemen are saying, go ahead, continue on blockading any ships going to Israel until there is a ceasefire and until humanitarian aid are allowed into Gaza, and we are willing to pay the price for that. Definitely, and I think it's been kind of, um, in a bad way, um, amazing to see the world so silent, uh, amazing to see these horrific images being broadcast to the world and still not a lot of action from the international world um, community. It is actually quite depressing that you have, you know, Saudi and Emiratis who are the richest in the, in the region um, attacking Yemen. And now we have the most powerful nation in the world, the U.S., attacking Yemen for standing for what is right and for a just cause. Yes, and I think the world sees um, who's actually working to stop the genocide and who's actually working uh, to facilitate it. Well, um, just for our listeners, this is uh, my guest, Aisha Juman, Dr. Aisha Juman, and she works for the Yemeni Relief and Reconstruction Foundation. Um, Dr. Juman, what should we be watching out for in the near future We've already seen the escalation and expansion of this war on Gaza in the region. We've seen airstrikes in Iraq from both the U.S. and Iran. We've seen strikes in Lebanon by Israel. Syria's been hit. Pakistan's been hit. Um, where do you see all this going? Unless the U.S. government decides to de-escalate, we're probably going to a regional war in a region that has a lot of resources, especially gas and oil. So it's basically, you know, unless cool heads come in and make the right decisions, this is going to be probably an instigation to World War III. People talk about Ukraine, the Ukraine war and the aggression of Russia on that as the cause for World War III. I think we are this war this genocide in Gaza may spark that. A lot of people, not just in the region and are in the world, are very angry at how the US government and its allies in the UK and Germany, for example, have handled uh, a, you know, a genocide unfolding in, in front of our eyes in our TV screens and not acted, and not just not acted, actually supported it and prevented anybody from trying to end this. Uh, there is a lot of anger, um, and, and people are really very tired of the double standard and the hypocrisy uh, that we was demonstrated through this. 
Um, so I'm really fearful for the region and fearful for the world because if the Red Sea is totally blocked, that means there is no shipping of oil or gas out of the region to anywhere. And we know that people cannot get that from Russia anymore. And so it's the winter. Europe is not going to be very happy with this. So there is a real, real risk of um, escalation and blowing up the region. Yeah, quite literally. Um, let me ask you about what's happening in South Africa in the International Court of Justice. How do you see the proceedings going on there? Uh, South Africa presented um, what many feel is a super strong case. I mean, the evidence is obvious. It, we got quotes from Israeli officials about wiping out Gaza, killing everybody. Um, we got videos from you know, average citizens, journalists, we have the attacks on journalists. How do you see uh, what's happening in the International Court of Justice uh, playing out? I want to start by saying that um, I applaud South Africa for doing the right thing. Uh, this is not surprising. This is the country that had Mandela and Tutu uh, who fought for justice in South Africa and always identified with the Palestinian struggle. The second thing also I want to mention is that mainstream media in the West did not cover the proceeding when South Africa was presenting its case, yet they covered it when Israel uh, re rebuttaled, which is extremely telling about where the Western mainstream media stands on this. Um, I'm very happy, and it sounds from what South Africa presented, they presented a very strong case based on a lot of reports by lawyers. I'm not a lawyer, but based on all uh, people who have expertise in the legal arena, they have all applauded South Africa's presentation. However, uh, people also commented that Israel's case was uh, very weak. The response to the allegations were very weak. If the court <clears throat> is not affected to pressures from the West, uh, meaning the U.S. and Germany and France and Canada, I think the courts would be able to show that there is genocidal intentions as produced by the South African uh, team. However, if they are you know, open to pressure by these countries, uh, they're not going to rule in favor of South Africa. And that, again, that actually will be the last nail on the coffin of the international war, world order as we see it today and uh, will expose the hypocrisy of, of the West for all to see. I'm definitely in agreement with that. Um, Dr. Aisha Juman, is there any closing statements you'd like to make about Yemen and what we're seeing? And at the end of that, can you close out with uh, telling people briefly about um, the Yemeni Relief and Reconstruction Foundation and how people can follow the work you're all doing. Thank you. I think the American people are the most generous people. Uh, they always stand with justice, and I would like for them to learn about the issues, not depend on the Western media, on because we have seen their bias very, very clearly um, by the fact that they did not um, broadcast the proceeding from the South African case uh, against Israel. I would like for them to learn about the issues and pressure their uh, representatives and senators to do the right thing. The, unfortunately, our uh, legislators <clears throat> are not in tune with what the American people want. Uh, you know, there have been a lot of polls that show about 70% of the people in the U.S. are against what the U.S. is doing in Gaza. We just need to up the pressure on our representatives and senators to act on our will. They are there representing us. We voted them into office. So I'd like to ask people to do that. Uh, Yemen Relief and Reconstruction Foundation was established to support the people of Yemen. It's a 100% volunteer organization. Every donation that we get goes to Yemen. 
So I hope people can look uh, us up at yemenfoundation.org. And if they can support us, they can do that. Uh, they can also support us by calling Congress uh, and asking that the U.S. stops attacking Yemen. For sure. Thank you very much for joining us tonight on Full Circle. That's Dr. Aisha Juman of the Yemeni Relief and Reconstruction Foundation. We really appreciate your time. And um, we will link to the Yemeni Relief and Reconstruction Foundation on our website just after the show tonight. And that's kpfaapprentice.org. Again, thank you very much, Dr. Juman. Thank you. And now for all of you, stay tuned to Full Circle. When we return, tens of thousands of people turned out in the Bay Area last weekend to say no genocide on Gaza and millions around the world. When we return, we will hear some sounds from the West Coast March on Washington for Gaza. Stay tuned. and its capitalist interests 
All the while, Yemen has not harmed a single person. Let me say that again. Yemen has not harmed a single person. But that has always been the core of imperialism. You genocide these people for spices, these people for silver, and these people for potatoes, and these people for silk, and you kill, and you kill, and you kill, until you are the only pirate in the sea. Blood has always oiled the imperial machine, and we are now seeing the former coal stations of empire pull out the cogs. This is the beginning of the end of empire. We know that Yemen has been under a brutal Western-backed blockade. Ever since the 2015 US-funded, Saudi-executed aggression against my people, Yemen has since become the poorest nation in the Middle East, and over 80% of the population is food insecure. This eight-year aggression from 2015 to 2020 was funded, supported, and led by the US and the UK under the Obama presidency and Trump's. Because what that means is all lines of this country's political spectrum is united in theft and genocide. And make no mistake, we are only poor because the criminal imperialist US, UK, EU, and the Gulf puppet nations have been stealing our resources to serve their imperialist and capitalistic interests. The Yemeni people are not poor. We are not poor. We are rich in resources, life, and steadfastness. Yemeni struggle and the Palestinian struggle are part of the broader global struggle against Western imperialism and hegemony, against the forces that steal from the people of the world, subjugate them for a few racist, sociopathic, white supremacists to exploit through war and imperialist intervention. We all know why our people in Yemen are being targeted. Since the genocide in Gaza started, my people have taken up their duty as a nation, which every nation, every other nation has failed to do, to stop the ongoing genocide against Palestinians. Yemen, without hesitation, has bravely and unwaveringly blocked ships from entering the Bab el-Mandeb Strait in the Red Sea, which is a critical access point that is of immense strategic importance to the US, the EU, and the Zionist occupation. Yemen, has explicitly stated they are resisting to divert aggression away from Gaza and towards Yemen. And in doing so, Yemen is showing the world what genuine solidarity looks like, affecting an actual large-scale material impact to slow down the forces committing genocide in Gaza. Nearly a hundred days into Israel's genocide against Gaza, the US and UK have shown that they will mobilize their military might in order to support Israel's genocide, protect capitalist interests, and, and shamelessly punish any nation who dare defend Palestine and challenge the evil forces of Zionism and imperialism. These governments continue to punish the few brave nations that dare to stop the wheels of Israel's genocidal operation against our people in Gaza, which has killed over 30,000 Palestinians and counting in the last three months. Despite its advanced military and technological capabilities, the Zionist entity has not achieved any of its military objectives, none. Its only capability is to conduct a genocide and continue the 75-year ethnic cleansing and dispossession of the Palestinian people. We see this escalation for exactly what it is, a desperate attempt to distract from the colossal military failures of the Zionist entity. If anything, this is ultimate proof of the strength and will of Yemen and Gaza, who have long suffered under this US imperialism. No force has proven capable of stifling the steadfastness of Yemen, and the West can never comprehend the principal stance of my people. If <laughs> 
أقف كل صباح أردد نشيدي عشت إيماني وحبي أمامية ومسيري فوق دربي عربية وسيبقى نبذ قلبي يمنية لن ترى الدنيا على أرضي وصية From Yemen to Palestine From Ilamu to Gaza to Al-Hudayda and to every corner of the global south Glory to all our martyrs and eternal glory to resistance against oppression and for dignity Thank you All right, welcome back to Full Circle right here on 94.1 FM KPFA and KPFA.org. We're also on First Voice Media on Facebook where we post all of our shows and our video content. You just heard a support speech for Yemeni solidarity with Gaza and Palestine from Palestinian youth movement member Selma. Um, Just a reminder that there's much more content on the First Voice Media Facebook page where we posted speeches from the West Coast March on Washington held in San Francisco, as well as the shutdown of the Port of Oakland the day before. That's on First Voice Media on Facebook. Now I'm going to throw it over to J.R. Valray from Block Report Radio and his update on the International Criminal Court of Justice and the hearing that was held charging Israel with genocide. Today, our guest is Bilal Shatila. He is a California licensed attorney. He is also Lebanese American, and you can catch his analysis of what's going on at the International Criminal Court in The Hague. You can catch it on his YouTube channel, Legal Guru. Bilal, how you doing, man? Yes, sir. Mr. JR, thank you for having me. Long time no talk. Yes, sir. I've been watching some of your posts on Instagram, and you've been commenting on South Africa bringing Israel to the International Criminal Court in The Hague. And what is the significance of South Africa in particular bringing these charges of genocide to Israel? There's a a lot of significance to it. Number one, I mean, they are well-versed on genocide, obviously, given their history. But notably, they're an African country that stepped up when, you know, pretty much all the Arab countries didn't. Um, And I think they're the most qualified to bring these charges, and obviously other Countries have since signed on to the uh, application at the ICJ. But yeah, I think they're the most qualified, uh, most articulate, well-versed. And the fact that they're bringing it carries more weight in the legal realm. South Africa's calls of genocide are being supported by over two dozen countries, and not one country with the white majority is supporting them last time I checked. What are your thoughts on that? So I try to separate the law and the rule of law with politics, but they're so very intertwined. And obviously, identity politics goes into that. And more specifically, you know, just the racist sort of white power structure that exists globally has, you know, made its way into it. I can't say it made its way into because from the outset, you know, the the laws and the conventions and the treatises and everything that comprises international law and even obviously domestically in the U.S. is built off of this idea of of whiteness as a sort of a superiority. And when you have a foundation like that, you see it play out in ways like this, where, you know, one example I was talking earlier with a friend is how over 90% of the international criminal court defendants are black or brown, you know, you don't see any white people at the ICC. And in this case, we have Israel, you know, tries to pass itself off as a secular, you know, white society in, in the Middle East. And they are uh, at the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, which is separate from the International Criminal Court. It's a very tough question to answer, and there's so many layers to it. But at the end of the day, you know, it's... see. The way I try to describe it is, let's say when we're looking at discrimination, you can have outright discrimination where, say, an employer 
specifically targets you based on a protected class like your race, your gender, your ethnicity, your national orientation, sexual orientation, etc., you can have that type of discrimination. But then there's another type of discrimination that's called desperate impact, disparate impact. And this basically shows you the results. The results are not balanced. They're disproportionate. So when you have disproportionate results like that, in the law, you can uh, infer that there was racism involved in this particular, you know, let's say a company is not hiring people of color. Well, you don't have to look at their hiring practices or policies. You just have to look to the fact that they don't have any people of color that are otherwise qualified to be their employees. I kind of try to make that analogy to at, at the international stage where you see clear genocide taking place, no question about it. And you have this court case and you have the defendant Israel not only having the audacity to come into court and deny these allegations, but you also have the U.S. and other and in the U.K. and France and Germany kind of backing Israel no matter what. There's nothing that they can do that the white global power structure will not back, it seems, obviously. I mean, they're just slaughtering people. So what else is there to do? There's no level of depravity left to be condemned, you know, if they haven't done it this far. So, yeah, it's, it, this is a very, very deep topic that obviously we can get into for hours. But I try what I try to do, JR, is basically break things down in a digestible manner that isn't too heavy on the legalese try to put things into layman's terms. And I think I do a good job because, you know, I, I just posted my first TikTok video last week and it got over 600,000 hits. And everyone in the comment section is like, you know, saying we appreciate this. You know, I learned something new. You know, this explanation was very good for me to understand because lawyers like doctors tend to kind of get caught up in the legal world and, and, and assume that our listeners know things that they obviously don't because right. you know, they didn't go to law school. They're not trained in law. So I wanted to ask you, you, you threw something in there. You said this is not the International Criminal Court. This is the International Court of Justice. What is the difference? And if they're both based at The Hague, what are the ramifications of this verdict on Israel? To be fair, the ICJ is looking at Israel as a state. The ICC will look, if it gets there, I hope it does, but will look more specifically at individual persons to criminally charge, like Netanyahu, you know, like the Minister of Defense, like you know, all these major figures within Israel that have come out and called for a genocide. It could even be soldiers. So that's what the ICC will look at. I think South Africa's decision to file in the ICJ is a good strategic one because it gives South Africa and the world really an opportunity to put forth evidence and observe it and weigh testimony, you know, at least preliminarily to get a better idea of, you know, what a criminal prosecution might look like. So if Israel is convicted of genocide... I mean, are there any legal ramifications against the state? Are there sanctions? I mean, what? So, yeah. You know, it's, it's complicated, but I'll try to answer it like this. Right now, they're looking at what's called provisional measures. That's what the ICJ is looking at. The whole case is going to take a couple of years. But just this portion for what's called provisional measures, this is seeking a immediate order from the ICJ that tells Israel to cease and desist this genocide. But what, what the, the messed up part, and this is a bureaucrat, this is by design, basically. The messed up part is that that order that the ICJ will issue, hopefully, will go to the UN Security Council. The UN Security Council has sole enforcement. So they're the only international body that can actually enforce an order from the ICJ. This is historically how it's been. This is according to the Geneva Convention. This is just how it is, okay? 
the U.S. and five other super or four other superpowers have veto power, so they can veto the decision. They can say, "Okay, we don't. We're not going to enforce this. Go, you know, what are you going to do? You, we can't do nothing about it." So if the U.S. does decide that we're we're going to veto this, which you know a lot of people are anticipating, I'm more hopeful than that. I think this would be insane for the U.S. to veto because obviously. At the international stage, the U.S. holds itself out as this beacon of justice and, you know, as a, the, the premier democratic society in the world. And, you know, so it would be insane if we saw a veto. And obviously we did see a veto under similar circumstances in Nicaragua. But the U.S. has been pretty consistent with not vetoing such orders. So I'm hopeful that they don't. But if they do, then we're... Back to square one. The main point here is that it's been 103 days of this genocide on the Palestinians, committed very blatantly by Israel, and we need an immediate, immediate solution. And when the courts are not effective, when other powers, strong military powers are not effective and are, in fact, choosing to side with Israel, that's when you're going to see... You know, militant groups, that's when you're going to see pe people fending for themselves because no one else is going to protect them. Every, every system has failed them. So if every system fails you, you have no choice. You have no choice but to pick up arms, but to do whatever you can, whatever it is, even if you're going on social media, whatever you can. Like for us as American citizens, and by the way, most citizens of all of these places, even Germany, I'm talking to German citizens and you know, even in Israel, obviously, you can see their protests almost every day now and people getting thrown into uh, solitary confinement over it. Citizens all over the world don't reflect their government. Now, their governments are the one obviously making these decisions. So it's, it's causing all of the, these reverberations on behalf of entire nations that don't even agree. It's just such a limited pool of individual people that are making these decisions that makes this even, you know, adds another layer of complexity to it. But basically, well, if, if the ICJ does issue an order and the U.S. vetoes it, then you're going to see, I mean, the, basically that'll be the end. In my opinion, that'll be uh, totally delegitimizing the international court. There will be no, you know, at the post-World War II, you know, world order. All of that goes out the window because that would just set such a bad precedent that it would be met with so much resistance that um, I don't see it overcoming that. Do you think that this is an important case that will affect the legitimacy of the international criminal courts due to the fact that, as you said, the global South have been the ones that have been prosec prosecuted the most under it. It was world renowned because of the Nuremberg trials, but we haven't seen anything of that size coming from a European country. There have been no charges. So if Israel gets out of this somehow, how do you feel this will affect the legitimacy of international law? It would be toast. It would be toast. And I don't even think the conversation will get to, you know, the international court, I think, will be totally delegitimized. De so will the U.S. You know, so will these Western powers, including the U.K., including France, including Germany, and obviously Israel. You're going to see a level of resistance that I don't even think these global leaders anticipate. People are making connections from all over the world now. There's social media. You know, as, as limited as it is and as quickly as you can get shadow banned, we're still being able to get our messages across and connect with one another as far as citizens are concerned, as far as nations are concerned, as far as races and ethnicities and religions are concerned. So how are you going to stop that? I think these global elites are completely miscalculating all of this. I really do. And it's a, it's a level, and when you hear them talk and when you listen to the tone of their voices, it's so arrogant and so, you know, just callous with such depravity. They don't care. So 
you know, it's, I wish obviously they, they would see, you know, things the way I see them and the way a lot of, you know, regular people see them, but they don't, they're just so blinded by their power. They're blinded by, um, this world and, and, and the, the power that they think that they perceive they have over it. We were talking a little bit about the U.S. You were saying that you don't think that the U.S. would veto the International Court of Justice's verdict if it came to the Security Council to enforce it. But looking at the fact that the U.S. is the biggest sponsor of Israel and has been for a long time or since its inception, Mm -hmm. um, do you think that that will play a part because it will protect its global partner? It's not even a global partner, JR. It is, you, have, you can't look at the U.S. as a, oh, Israel's the U.S.'s ally. No, no. Israel completely has the U.S. at every level you look at completely uh, gripped. They, it's, they're at their mercy. And I don't know how they got them to this point. Um, but they do, and 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 what's okay? So what's what's interesting? There's two really interesting things happening right now. Number one, white people are starting to see it. Regular plain Jane white people in the U.S., in the South, all over, are starting to be like, wait a minute, you know, we don't support Israel. Why does you know? Why are we giving all this money to Israel? I'm a poor white man in America, and you're sending my money off to the Middle East. And they get free education, free health care, free this, free that. So that's really interesting that white people are waking up to it. Because, like, obviously people of color are like, yeah, we've been on this. But white people waking up to it, it's like, whoa, it's a new day. So that's number one. Number two, if it gets to the Security Council and there's so much political pressure and the U.S. just, you know, they can't veto it. They just can't. It would just destroy everything. So it doesn't get vetoed, it goes through. But one of the remedies, you know, obviously it's always peacekeeping. The ICJ always wants to have peacekeeping remedies available. But where peacekeeping remedies have been rejected or otherwise not available, what a lot of people don't know is that the Security Council can put forth military force to prevent military harm. So if, if one country is causing military harm, like, you know, you saw in, in Qatar, I forget which year it was, but a military force was authorized to prevent that, and it worked. So in this case, you know, where you have Netanyahu just yesterday coming out and saying, oh, well, whatever, we're not following anybody's order, and we're going to do what we want, that should call for military force to come down and prevent that. The problem is, you know, none of these superpowers are going to want to actually use their military to bomb, you know, their ally, essentially. So what I think will happen is one of two things. Either a coalition is going to come together, a coalition of smaller countries. That might include Russia, might include China, I don't know. That actually can use their military. I mean, it's not otherwise illegal that if they weren't, you know, part of the Security Council that had to use their military force. If it's an outside power that came together and to use their military force to enforce an ICJ order, then I think that would be legitimate. So you have that. But you also have these militias. These militias that are being, you know, they're getting propped up and they're, you know, ready to defend their land. They're ready to defend the Palestinians. You got people ready ready for whatever, ready to die, ready to jump into the Red Sea. That's right now. So imagine if the ICJ does say, okay, we got to stop this. That kind of gives everybody the green light to, to do, you know, literally, like Malcolm said, by any means necessary to stop them. And it would, take, it would, it would you know, theoretically be legitimate even under international law. It's the same as the self-defense argument, but... You know, if, if I'm standing with you and somebody punches you in the face, I have the right to defend you. You know, right. Um, the same, your your right to defend yourself also extends to me. If I'm your friend or I'm your family member and I'm standing there next to you, I can do that. 
So this is kind of the same concept, but you know, this is a lot of ifs and buts. So we'll see. We'll see how it plays out. It ain't looking good. Iran is sending ballistic missiles over 1,200 kilometers away now. They got nuclear powers. Israel's crazy ass has nuclear powers too. So obviously de-escalation is needed, but when you've mixed in so much, just there's so much mixed in the pot that it's just as much as I want to say like, yeah, we obviously need to de-escalate. You have an aggressor that is a complete lunatic in Israel. And they're such fanatics that they'll just blow the whole world up. And, and they have nuclear capabilities. And the U.S., if the U.S. was an independent sovereign nation, you know, that wasn't controlled by Israel, they would have been stopped this. So. As we're seeing with the Epstein case, who some say are hooked to Mossad, when we are talking about the influence that Israel has over U.S. politics, I mean, do you see a correlation between the power that Israel has over, say, the U.S. government and, say, the the list of politicians in particular that were linked to the Epstein case, as well as him being rumored to be connected to Israeli intelligence? My position on that is we don't need to dig too far deep into that theory. We just kind of have to infer that Israel has dominance, not just power, but dominance over media, Hollywood, finance, politics with APAC, which is the biggest organization in the U.S. for dark, that dark money flows through to these politicians. So they just have such a grip. They have such a grip on the U.S. across all sectors. Let me tell you a crazy story, Jr. When I was uh, about 20 years old, there used to be a Detroit-based clothing brand called El Wissam. You can look them up. I used to buy these. They used to have a five, $600 leather jacket with the fur. It was just every season, the nicest jacket. You know. Anyway, one year, and I, I know the owner personally, a, a Mossad agent literally came up to him and said, listen, your brand is doing really well. It's growing this, it's that. You need to donate some money to Israel, and we'll just, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll help you, basically. And he said, absolutely not. Within months, his shipments were getting stopped in New York. His materials were getting redirected. And now, you know, they're just a small operation still. They were never able to expand. So it's just that type of behavior that Israel and Israelis and Zionists are known for. They play the dirtiest games you could possibly imagine. They will blackmail you, you know. There's no such thing as fair play, which is evident in their national fighting style, which is Krav Maga. <laughs> Krav Maga is just the, most, the least fair fight that you can get into. You know, there are no rules with these people. There are no rules. Anything goes. Any manipulation tactic, any blackmailing, any any advantage, anything goes. There are no rules. But they expect everybody to abide by the rules when it comes to anybody who's not them, obviously. We're running out of time. <laughs> that was the voice of Bilal Shatila. He is a California licensed attorney, a Lebanese American, and also he is the commentator and the founder of Legal Guru, the Legal Guru channel on YouTube. How else can people stay in touch with you? TikTok, Instagram, Legal Guru, LegalGuru.biz. That's pretty much it. Well, I want to thank you for coming on with us, man. I appreciate <laughs> your expertise, uh, Bilal. And, you know, this is the first of hopefully many. Of course. All right. Of course. Thank you for having me, JR. And, and uh, to your listeners, try to not to despair. Try to stay positive. Try not to let the chaos get to you. And really take time to educate yourself. Uh, this is the most important time, in my opinion, to be educated on what's going on. 
And, and you can learn quickly. International law is not that complex. You can learn quickly. So thank you for having me again, Jack. Right on, man. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Talk to you soon, man. Absolutely. All right, peace. All right. You were just listening to the voice of Bilal Shatila, a California Lebanese American licensed attorney who runs the Legal Guru channel. And he analyzes what's going on with the war in Israel. I am the People's Minister of Information, JR, signing off for Block Report Radio. You can get more at Block Report Official on Instagram. Until next time, we out. that brings us to the end of tonight's show shout out to jr and the block report for that last interview and remember check out our website kpfaapprentice.org just after the show tonight for pictures archive shows and of course important links and information related to tonight's show also please like and follow first voice media on facebook where we do post live stream videos and other material that doesn't always make it to the radio Shout out to the Full Circle crew. That's Miss M, the executive director, and me, Freewell and Franklin. I have been your host tonight. I'm also the technical director for this show, Full Circle. Thanks for listening, everyone. And remember, while you're out there, please protect your health and also your humanity. And stay tuned to KPFA. Up next is La Onda Bajita. Good night, everyone.